Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast series, Immersa, People and Passion, sponsored by the ATTC Network. I'm your host, Doreen Bader, the Executive Director of Immersa. This week, we'll be hearing about peer recovery specialists. Our subject matter experts on this topic are Paul Bowman and Nicole O'Donnell, and they're moderated by Colleen LaBelle. Paul Bowman is an at-large member of the NIDA Massachusetts Healing Communities, CAB. He serves as the HCS Massachusetts National Steering Committee CAB representative. Paul has 30 years of experience working for the Commonwealth. He has lived experience, and he has been an advocate for people with substance use disorder and stigma reduction. Paul has been the regional supervisor at the Massachusetts Department of Housing, served as the chapter director of the Massachusetts National Alliance for Medication-Assisted Recovery, and as a member of its board of directors. Paul was vice chair of the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's Bureau of Substance Abuse Services Consumer Advisory Board. He is a certified methadone advocate. Nicole O'Donnell is a certified recovery specialist, recognized by the Philadelphia Inquirer for Excellence in Patients' Care for her work at Penn Medicine Center for Addiction Medicine and Policy, which includes expansion of opiate use disorder treatment and engagement initiatives at Penn Presbyterian, Penn Hospital, and the Hospital of the University of Penn. Colleen LaBelle is the director of the OBAT TTA program and the founder and director of Boston Medical Center's OBAT Clinic. She also serves as the program director of many related projects, including two opioid addiction treatment extension for community healthcare outcomes, ECHOS, at BMC. Ms. LaBelle has over 30 years of experience treating HIV and addiction and over a decade of experience advising healthcare organizations on incorporating addiction treatment into their programs. She's a member of the Massachusetts Board of Nursing and Governor Charlie Baker's Opioid Working Task Force. Ms. LaBelle is board certified in addiction nursing and pain management, and she earned both her BSN and MSN from Grand Canyon University, in addition to a diploma in nursing from St. Elizabeth School of Nursing. So welcome and thanks for joining us today. My name is Colleen LaBelle and I will be introducing to you um, Nicole and Paul, who will be sharing with us real life stories in the role of a recovery coach. Um, Nicole is gonna walk us through um, the path of a person faced with fear in life's crossroads of substance use. So let's start out by having Nicole um, talk us through that story. Thank you, Colleen. Um, yes, I had the opportunity yesterday um, due to being engaged in the recovery community. I had this amazing opportunity to speak at a public health class um, who was facilitated by um, Dr. Jeffrey Hom, who's the policy director at the um, Philadelphia Health Department. So one of his students reached out and wanted to do outreach with me, a medical student. So we went yesterday, we started at um, the mobile syringe exchange in Philadelphia, and then we went to Kensington, um, you know, doing community outreach, snacks, harm reduction, um, Narcan. And we came across a person who was look, he looked um, extra sad. So we stopped to talk to him and he disclosed to us that he had just overdosed about 20 minutes before we met him. And that he had been released from jail four days before um, he experienced his overdose. He was given buprenorphine in jail, but only for detox, which only lasted 10 days. And he was discharged with, um, you know, opiate naive. So he wasn't maintained on the buprenorphine. 
Um, he did want to engage in treatment. So we um, traveled with him to Penn Presbyterian and took him to our emergency department. And um, we were able to get him engaged in care right from triage. One of our um, amazing um, physician colleagues, Dr. Jeff Moon, um, immediately triaged him prescribed his buprenorphine right to the Presby pharmacy and he was engaged in care, you know, in less than an hour. Wow. That's so cool. Nicole, um, it's so wonderful to meet you um, here as another peer um, person who's worked in, in the emergency department and does so much outreach. I'm just wondering, you know, in my work working with peers in the OBAT or in the emergency department, what do you think it would have been like, you know, if, you hadn't been there. I mean, think about it, how all the steps you got to skip through. I, you know, I, I was on a phone call a couple of weeks ago um, with with um, some leadership from NIDA and, and they were saying like- Yeah, that's a great know, question, Paul. And as an overdose survivor- and, and what um, is it taking to revive people? And, um, and I was really surprised that, you know, uh, I'm lucky enough to be on this heal uh, uh, grant and and dr nora vocal even wanted to speak to people that actually see people you know or talk to people that actually work with people so what do you think it would have been like if if you hadn't been there i mean mm -hmm. I, could he have gotten to the hospital what would have happened you think yeah so no that's a great question paul and i as an overdose survivor from many years ago before we had all of these interventions in the hospitals, um, I know what it was like when when no one was there, right? We didn't get the resources. We didn't get um, connected to any kind of treatment. And we both know we didn't really have compassionate care and engagement in an emergency department. So I know that it would have been a completely different outcome if we weren't there. And I don't, I just mean, um, not that I was there. I'm not like responsible for, you know, saving a life or any of that. I just think that like the compassionate care, compassionate engagement made it really easy for him to make the decision that he wanted to engage in care today. No, I, I think you, you, you got it because they're, they're not using, um, um, people who they're not using peers for, for just because we're cheap work cheap labor, which we are, believe it. Nobody's paying us much to do this work, but they're using peers because people talk to us. Even if it's just that I'm giving somebody a blanket, a warm blanket, I don't know more times that I've done that than anything else, or, or you know, engaging with them. When I can remember being in an ED, it was just people telling me how horrible I was. And, and you know, once in a while, I got some, some you know, wonderful nurses and wonderful doctors, but a lot of the times, it was basically threats to get out of there or, you know, I needed to go to a treatment. They're like, well, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. We could, I was actually told to walk to treatment before at one point. And believe me, I'm not saying I was a, a nice person. I wasn't. I was, I have a substance use disorder, you know, I'm lucky I am in recovery now, but I was a real difficult person to deal with, but I was not treated with much compassion back then. And that's why I think it's so important to have a peer in every aspect of for this disease because people talk to me that don't talk to anybody and i think that's like the first part is getting people to engage hey a lot of the friends or people i work with don't think you know recovery coaches or peer specialists belong in the emergency room because people you know might not even be contemplative or pre-contemplative but just making that connection 
is huge for me. And I'm sure, is that happening with you a lot too? It is, Paul. And that moment in an emergency department in a crisis situation lends for so much engagement from a harm reduction perspective. If we want people to be ready for treatment at some point, they have to be alive. So the the Narcan, um, you know, conversation, the how do we keep you safe conversation, the, you know, test your drugs because there's fentanyl and everything conversation. So that place of crisis is such an opportunity to um, help the person to the pre-contemplative or to the contemplative or the action, the action stage of change, right? And being nice, that compassionate conversation um, allows people the safe space to come back when they do or are, you know, want to talk about some kind of um, treatment. One of the things that I was working on uh, last was um, a harm reduction kit. And, and I was talking to the addiction consulate unit this morning and they finally have um, the ability to give out, you know, clean needles, supplies, alcohol, um, rub, alcohol um, swabs. Uh, they don't have everything. They have cookers and ties. But, you know, until you can do that, even at the bridge clinic, I would always, or the OBAT that I work at, would run out and ask people because a lot of the people that, that I work with are using and say, do you need supplies? And nine out of 10 times people said yes. And that's just not happening. at so many places because they may not go to a needle exchange or, or whatever the reason is they're embarrassed to buy them or the, there's a lot of issues like that. And I think, and, and until somebody engages, I, we always had this expression. If you don't have a pulse, you really can't find recovery. Right. So we have to be able to to be able to work all aspects of it. I, I I think that's so important, but it's been such a heavy lift. I don't know for you guys if it's been to get, you know, clean supplies. I know most in Boston hospitals, they don't do that. And they're just going to be starting to. We don't do that at Penn. We're trying for that. We have a harm reduction um, work group on the opiate task force in the health system, and that's one of our projects. So we are working on that. Um, but I think the most important thing, aside from the resources, because we can have all the resources in the world, right? If people don't feel safe asking for them, they're just resources that are unused. So that compassionate, like our role, Paul, in, in the hospital, um, compassionately engaging those patients so they feel safe to ask for those, those resources and to disclose they're struggling with some kind of substance use disorder is, I think, the most important part of our role. No, I agree. And I've started to, you know, look at some of the recent data um, around this. And I, and I finally are seeing things that people who um, have an interaction with a peer are more likely to have um, a better outcome than people that don't engage with a peer. And I think that's going to be the thing that really gets us involved. You know, I, I, another thing that was um, something we used to use in advocacy was like, um, you know, having people that have lived experience at the table at all levels, from the people that make the decisions to the people that go out into the street and do the work. I think we call it nothing about us without us. And I think we need to keep hammering that home because, you know, if, if we're going to be able to be the peer recovery coaches or specialists or whatever that that we need to be able to 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 be at different levels of decision making and, and and to be at the table to give our input 
on what's going on and what's going right, what's going wrong. You are absolutely correct. And that's an advocacy um, soapbox that I'm on over here in Philadelphia. Um, I sit in a lot of meetings um, with leadership, not only at the health system, but just at the city level. And I look around and I'm only the peer, the only peer there yet. They're talking about how to um, how to support peers, but not asking the peers. Right. Um, so that like nothing about us without us, you you are correct. Um, What's really cool about being able to do this is getting to to meet somebody that, you know, is doing something similar to what I am. And, and this could just be such an incredible thing to have, you know, a group of people that that are like the champions peers and, and they're they're you know given whatever they work in either it's the emergency room or it's an addition console unit or an OBAD or whatever that just the three times that we've talked I feel like I have somebody that is another champion that understands the, some of the work that I do and and being able to do this you know this little chat for 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 the podcast is is really cool because now I have somebody that I never knew before, you know, from someplace. So I really hope that this they can this is just the beginning of the fostering of the peer relationship with uh, this organization. No, you're right. And I think that we need to continue to engage our peers um, nationally to get all of the champions together. So we really can create a culture like a peer culture in the workforce. Um, one of the things that I've been noticing that I'm trying to change the best I can is what kind of trainings would be helpful for peers. So when we do try to engage patients into evidence-based treatment, would empower peers to know what the best information that we're giving the patient is, right? How do we get research and evidence-based treatment into the hands of peers so they know what works for our patients? I have to agree. I, I was um, taking recently um, a, a harm reduction. Um, uh, it's a, like a 10 part um, training course, a technical training assistance course that they've been offering at um, uh, Boston Medical Center in their TTA unit. And and the stuff that, that I didn't even know as somebody who, who was an IV drug user and somebody that, that it was amazing. And I think some of that stuff we could if I didn't know it, you know, I'm sure that that a lot of the people that I uh, support or coach my recovery don't know it either, you know, and I was surprised how much I didn't know. Like, you know, like I didn't know that there was a bevel at the end of a needle, mm -hmm. you know, and then I was talking to some of um, uh, the people that I support that they're still using. And even the fact that they didn't know that you know, after you cook your stuff up that you need to let it cool, right? Right. You, know, you shouldn't be injecting stuff that's whatever boiling should be. And I couldn't be believe, first of all, I, I knew it, but I couldn't believe how many people didn't know that. They said, no, I just draw it up and I, because we were talking a lot about fentanyl strips and, and just the little bit of education that that's done for providers and, and whoever needs to be, at all levels of from anybody if we're really going to talk harm reduction we have to you know teach the people that are going to face the most harm death about the harm reduction not just the the people who um might be the providers of course i think it's great that the providers get that training as well but you know i, I was one of the people that learned how to do it myself and 
you know, and so unfortunately it wasn't uh, the best way to do it. You know, right. We have a responsibility as peers to make sure we have the best information um, that we're providing for our patients. So not only with harm reduction, because that's, you know, that's a big um, area that we have to stay informed about because the drug supply changes. So the resources change a little bit. Right. But also when we're presenting evidence based treatment, like it's we really want to articulate like medication for opiate use disorder reduces the risk of death by 50%. Like not everyone knows that our peers don't know that. And it is kind of um, our responsibility to one, stay informed ourselves. So we're giving the best information and two, educating our peers. So they're articulating to the patients that are so at risk um, what the best treatment options are. Nicole, how, um, how do you feel things are going for Philadelphia right now? And how hard was it to get through the last year of COVID? That is a, that's a question. That is a question. Mm -hmm. Um, Philadelphia overdoses are up. Um, the drug supply is, um, you know, everything has fentanyl in it, even if it's benzo pill, you know, things there's, there's fake pills that have fentanyl in them. Um, crack cocaine has fentanyl in it now, methamphetamine. So we're dealing with overdoses from, you know, drugs that may be taken by a patient that's opiate naive and doesn't know that they're using fentanyl. Um, panda, I'm, I'm just going to say, but pandemic money, um, that people received really, um, sparked a lot of reoccurrences of use. I was in doing outreach in Kensington early COVID. And then I went later in COVID and um, it was like a, I, I, I can't even really explain like how different it was. Now, now Kensington's like that anyway, right? But, but to see a difference in the amount of people that are experiencing homelessness and substance use disorder and reoccurrences in Kensington, the difference because of, you know, um, pandemic money or, you know, programs were virtual. So the disconnection, not having, um, their supports and, you know, their, um, support groups were all virtual. So many reasons for reoccurrences, but, we're handling it the best we can. Um, Paul, like I told you, we created a peer support for peer supporters meeting because we know um, how much everybody was struggling, including the peers in COVID. So we're trying. I, I was just going to um, say that that's something else that we had in common, that we both um, are able to get support from um, something that was created you know, at your um, your university and, and where I um you know, get support from too, you know, that we uh, go to a, a once a week uh, chat. And um, that's something that's happened since COVID. And that's been really incredible, because this has been difficult on all of us, including myself with, with, you know, COVID and being able to get the support from other coaches and to, you know, be able to help facilitate that. But I really feel that the self care piece, everyone talks about it. But and a, it, to be able to actually have a place every week that I go to and get the support from, from my peers. And, and, mm -hmm. and, they've, and they've really been careful to make it really a private space mm -hmm. um, where, I, where, where the place, which uh, Boston Medical Center, which has been sponsoring for this, has been one of the, one of the benefits, you know, because of COVID that, that's happened is to be able to do that and to actually to be able to meet coaches from around the state 
So uh, I don't know if your yours is limited to just, you know, Philadelphia or is it statewide, but I think it's one of the coolest things that I've been able to do. Exactly. Me too. I'm um, super grateful we were, and it is one of the silver linings of COVID. Um, and it's open to anyone who's a peer anywhere. Um, we've had people come from other states just to like get support. Um, I did have a question for you, Paul. In your emergency department and where peers engage, do you struggle or a little bit with the multiple pathways, like maybe um, peers, you know, not having the information that they need or are using their own pathway to um, try to navigate treatment for a patient that might need different resources? I think that's the biggest issue with coaching in general that, you know, a lot of people come from um, either the 12 step or whatever world, the AA world. And, um, and they will say that they're open to multiple pathways and then you'll get there and they will have talked somebody into not getting buprenorphine or not getting a methadone because they right. just need to do 90 meetings in 90 days. So it's really difficult. I think things are slowly changing, but there's a bunch of us that are openly, you know, coaches on buprenorphine mm -hmm. and, and we've been able to have a voice. It's a very small voice though, because when I go to a big convention of coaches, we're the minority and we're kind of, I even felt that stigmatized mm -hmm. within the coach world, but you know, everyone talks about, Oh, multiple pathways, but I don't think, I think it's a lot better than it was. I mean, think about, when I was using there, I wouldn't have even been able to get into a sober home or anything because they didn't allow people who are on medication mm -hmm. to do that. So things are changing, but not enough, not enough to the fact that the, you know, the best chance for an outcome is, you know, medication for opioid use disorder in half the coaches, you know, if the person says I want it, I want it, I want it. Absolutely. But they don't, you know, um, say, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe some of them do right. actually, but, but it's, I think it's slowly happening, but we don't have the time for people to catch up to speed, unfortunately. You're right. Fentanyl was a game changer. Yeah. Fentanyl was a game changer in the world of, um, the recovery community. I, I asked you that cause we experienced the same thing and it's not just necessarily the coaches. It's, um, you know, the recovery community itself, there's this inherent uh, stigma when it comes to medications. Absolutely. And yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out. How do we get the evidence that we know that it works in the hands of people that, um, you know, to, to try to help them think about their own stigma and the stigma they have, you know, that are in the rooms or, or somewhere like in the recovery community, there's more stigma, um, around medication than there is outside of, I think. The, um... it, it, it's funny if they only knew the history, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous was started by, you know, um, those Dr. Bill Wilson and, and that, and that other guy, do you know that they invited onto their board of directors, one of the only non-alcoholics in back in 1940, whatever it was. Mm. I mean, that doctor was Dr. Vincent Dole, the man who came up with methadone. methadone he, yeah, I do know it, that's, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> And he yeah. was allowed on their board as one of the only people that wasn't an alcoholic because they were hoping that he would search for medication that would treat, you know, alcohol use disorder. So if nobody that I know 
who's in a 12-step program even know that. But I actually have uh, some documents that, you know, the correspondence between them back and forth. And he sat on their board. I think it was in the 60s or maybe in, in the late 50s. So if they knew the history, they they wouldn't be, you know, as rough. I think the Narcotics Anonymous is really tougher. I remember not even be able to, when I had a year ever speak. And then at one point I wasn't even allowed to get a keychain. You know, how you get keychains at certain dates and times and, and, and you have to pick a group. There are some groups that don't enforce that and more right. than more groups than we think. So I just have to look for those groups, but, but saying, Oh, you're on methadone, you're on buprenorphine, you know, you can't have your 90 day keychain. And that was just, so that was like a punch to the stomach for me, you know? Yeah. I'm so sorry that you experienced that. I, I think maybe the needle's moving a little bit. Um, I think that we have a lot of work to do. And we also want to acknowledge that, you know, 12-step meetings are amazing and they help a lot of people. They're not treatment though. And, yeah. and what we're articulating in like an emergency department in a crisis situation is how do we keep this person alive and how do we, um, you know, engage them in evidence-based treatment? You know, it's not an AA or an NA, like it's that's that's a community self-help group. And I think that that message sometimes doesn't um, come across. I think that we're not good at giving people the data, like the data on, you know, even if somebody, you know, um, takes Vivitrol, if which is a you know good drug for certain things, that if they don't get that, you know, shot every 28 days, that if they, you know, relapse, there's a good chance they'll be dead, you know? So people just need to be informed about what their choices are and what will be the best choice for them. And then they can make a really informed decision, you know? And, and I think that's one of the most important things that they, their families know that too. You know, I, I remember meeting a family who um, the child had actually died and they were never told. She had, she'd been in five different uh, treatment centers and nobody ever told this family about buprenorphine suboxone right. treatment. And this is a few years ago this happened and they yeah. lost their daughter to never even knowing there was a medication that, you know, that's approved, that has good outcomes. It's just, it's just, it's just crazy that that could happen. Well, it's all stigma based, right? Like we're not articulating the message about medication due to a lot of inherent stigma that's been around for decades. And the thing with relapse too, people, I don't think understand that this is a, a lot of times it, it's a chronic disease, like any chronic disease would, would present itself that relapse, you know, is often part of recovery. More often it is than it's not, you know, I've, I've relapsed and it's, it's become such a, a, a really hard thing because you just feel so humiliated because it gets built up like, you know, we'll save a seat for you, but you don't think it's going to happen. And then when it does, nobody said to me, oh, that's a part of it. You should, you know, whatever that, that it, you feel so embarrassed, so alone, you never want to come back again to anything except, you know, because it's, it's just, if we were really had the data and we're educated that, Hey, this is probably going to happen. I, mm -hmm. I, I tell people that all the time you probably have a better chance that you will have a relapse than you won't. I mean, I don't want you to have one, of course, and we're going to try to do everything we can for you not to have one, but 
there's a better chance that you will have one that you won't have one probably. So Paul and Nicole, you, you've done an amazing job um, outlining the points of a recovery coach. And I think what's important is also for folks to understand that there's lots of data to support the value and the benefit of recovery coaching and that it improves outcomes, it improves retention, and it, it decreases um, social determinant, negative social determinants such as incarceration, it improves housing um, stability. So, but how do we, I mean, you both sit in places where there's really good uptick and buy-in to the recovery coach model, but that isn't the case everywhere. So how do you get that point across to others that the importance and the value of this additional discipline? That's a great question, Colleen, and I've often asked myself the same, and I think um, there's more research being done so we can prove um, the value in having coaches. Um, our early data for our program at Penn was that 68% of patients engaged in a medication and had a consult from a recovery specialist bedside where 68% were engaged in treatment 30 days post-discharge from the emergency department. You know, I think that's incredible, Nicole, but we're going to get buy-in by educating the recovery coaches. That's how, I mean, we're lucky enough to be members of a, a national international organization that drives on data. Most of them have never heard of it or, and nobody's ever even given any data as a recovery coach on anything, Never mind this, you know, topic. It's not something that happens, unfortunately. It's how many people, we don't hear about numbers and outcomes. I mean, the supervision that, that I got when I was at a bigger institution, there's not enough, you know, education or it's very limited unless you have, you know, uh, somebody that can sponsor you through stuff. I think um, the hospital gets $200 a year to get education and, and half of it's not around anything that would teach people about the stuff that that I've learned, you know, on my own. I mean, it's just, I think by finding champions, you know, around the country and then to get them to maybe, you know, have uh, boards at either the, the Department of Public Health or something like that. I'm trying to think of ways or professional organizations. We have to continue to add. So that that's a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. So are there any professional organizations that are welcoming to recovery coaches that also have the medical component to it? I think there's, um, we have a recovery learning center that has been offline for a year that's going to start up again. But I would say no. There's, you know, CCAR has a thing that they do or, or, or other organizations like once a year. So, but, you know, to get together, but for the most part, um, I think this is new. So I think we need to start to have some organizations that either have, you know, a, a track. It seemed like ATOT had a track that was more peer oriented than before. So, you know, something's got to give because we're in like the land of the the lost, you know, not having a, an organization. You know, we're just finally recognizing the license. We're going to have licensed recovery coaches in Massachusetts. So, you know, there's no, you know, nursing organizations like for nurses. No, there isn't to my knowledge. I mean, you know, uh, where I come from, you know, uh, an organization, the National Alliance for Medication Assisted Recovery, that's an advocacy organization that, and I learned everything from them. And that was because they wanted to know more about their disease and methadone. 
So I don't think there is, um, you know, an organization for, not that I know of one that one that I've been to, or I don't know, Nicole, what do you, what do you think? I don't know that we have, and maybe this is, we all have to band together, like we said earlier, and find our champions across the country and create, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think education of medical students, um, I've been welcomed, and I was very fortunate to be welcomed in some medical schools um, to do outreach to them and and talk to them about the peer role. So I think that like we are going to be able to change the future, but how do we change the present? I'm not sure, and we'll have to figure that out together. No, I think that's great. We, um, we I was able to do some work as a patient, but not as a as a peer person with um, you know the 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 crit thing, which is a chief residence thing that they do at Boston medical. So maybe that would be a way to do it, to get a peer session as well as a patient session. What is the role? So I, I love your idea, starting with the medical students, you know, in getting them, you had said, I think yesterday that, that a medical student was even traveling with you to do outreach, which is an, an incredible way for them to get interest in this field too. Mm-hmm. Immersa. Yeah, Immersa. Do they have, I mean, I know that they have the mentor piece of it. Are there students that are members of Immersa? No, I'm just thinking the interdisciplinary component of Immersa, I feel like it's a place where peers could grow and right. should grow, right. right? Even if it were to work with the newer students, you know, or, or the, the residents or the whatever, as well as each other, right? Right. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, we know the value of stories, right? And the story that Nicole told and how important and how impactful that is. And that medical student being there, that will forever be with him. Mm -hmm. And that will impact his career and his path and what he does. I mean, Nicole already said he wants to like work in the ED and see what's happening. But also that ED was really important. And so it's a lot of it's about the people people interact with and the places people land. And that's really unfortunate, right? I mean, the fact that Nicole was there in that moment and she knew how to engage with that person in a dignified, respectful way. And the fact that she was able to get to that emergency room and she knew which one to go to, she bypassed four of them. I mean, that's horrible that she had to bypass four and that could have been the, it could have been life and death, but she knew that if she got to that one, that that patient would have been treated and been treated in a way that um, would have been appropriate and evidence-based and and quickly and not going through all the hoops. But we need to make it so that that happens everywhere. And and that that goes on here too. If if somebody needs to be referred to an emergency department and if I know there's no staff there on the weekend or whatever, or there's no consult unit, I'll be like, don't go there because they won't help you on Saturday or if it's after five o'clock and they only work till five. So everyone's kind of, I think, does that in a way, but it's it's funny. But does that happen in any other disease that you have to not? No. Choose right. your time No. It's, it's ridiculous that that happens in this disease. And we don't withhold evidence-based treatment for any other disease either. No, we don't have stress laws. No, we don't. And- right. 
we don't require therapy for any other medication that I'm aware of. And, and, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I was reading a study on um, people on methadone and they looked at outcomes for people that were doing, you know, and I think counseling is, is wonderful and therapy is wonderful too, but that there was not a real big difference in outcomes for people that did therapy or counseling and people that didn't, you know, is that the Sarah Wakeman study from? I think it was even before then. I I, I know that, yeah. Because she also studied that and wrote, you know, all of the outcomes for all of the treatment modalities. Right. She published last February that paper. Yeah, that's she was my uh, boss at Mass General, so mm -hmm. so she's done a lot of papers there. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff coming out of there. I think that um, they, they, they've done a lot of research in the Institute of Recovery, too, which is at Mass General. Um, uh, that What's the name of that place that Jack, whatever his name runs, Connors, or I can't even remember. Kelly, Kelly right. Okay. Joe, John Kelly. Yeah, I mean, they're doing that research. So I, I think we'll finally have the data on a lot of this stuff. But um no, but you're right though. It's it, it but you know, you, you talked about, you know, about the different coaches and 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 would all of them do that. But it isn't is that almost the same though in every field. There are nurses that wouldn't have done it or doctors that don't care. I mean, and then you have recovery coaches that aren't aren't that great either, you know? So you just want people to want to learn better, right? It's the, the, they may not be doing it right now. They may not know how to do it, but like our role, I think, is to spark some interest, provide information, and like you don't have to know everything. I always tell them that you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be perfect, um, but compassion. That's kind of like what you have to do. Like we'll figure it out together. What the resources and and the things are. Um, like you, you're not going to be faulted for not knowing everything. Yeah, you've got right? to at least have um, some compassion, and you have to have some empathy, and you've got to be able to have some recovery capital, and to be able to teach somebody that and get them so they know, you know, how to get um, the people that they're helping some some stuff that will, you know, help them. So I think that's probably one of the the biggest pieces is to be able to to share that. You know, people always are going to need housing or food or, 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 or something. And that's just a huge plus to be able to know how to access those benefits when uh, so many people seem like they have a problem doing that. And right now, I think this is a perfect opportunity with all of this money being released with COVID. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people are using it to buy drugs, but a lot of people will be able to use it to get housing too, you know? Right. The disparities are, yeah, within our, our community. Um, and they're not, you know, it's not helpful to, to not help them, you know, get food or their hierarchy of needs are not met. Um, it doesn't cost anything to be nice and try to help somebody. And I think another thing that we haven't talked about is, is the racial disparities and equities of, of people that get care. And in a lot of these situations are just really, even bigger in this in groups you know that that are overdosing or or you know not being able to get you know um people that speak spanish i mean i speak a little bit of spanish but not enough to really communicate but to to make the extra effort and get somebody 
they're supposed to have somebody by the law, but when they're in the ED to, you know, to be able to talk to somebody and explain it, we've really left behind the people that, that need the help the most, I think. And I think it's still happening. And, and hopefully with, you know, the, 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 the push to, you know, try to get some of this equity, you know, fix it in, in diversity and inclusion, all of it. It's just, it's really a huge issue. I think that people aren't, aren't getting the same care or the same levels of care or even the same response, you know, or, or of, of anything, you know what I mean? It's just, people are just and a lot of it is people with just, you know, unconscious bias, or I don't know if it's privilege or what it is, but it just happens all the time. I see it happen. Right. We know that the black community is not offered uh, medication for opiate use disorder, buprenorphine at the same rates that um, it's offered to Caucasian people, white mm. people. Um, and we know that the only place that that happens where it's an equal um, offer is in jail. And that's really sad. It sure is sad. And, and, and because our overdoses in the black and brown community are rising exponentially and they are still um, uh, victims of the racist drug war. I mean, let's just call it what it is, right? No, I, I, I totally agree with you. And the people that, you know, are going to jail disproportionately, even for fentanyl arrests, I even watched this week, even though it's not as, uh, as big and that community are the people getting the mandatory minimums are black men and, and, um, and teenagers. It's not, and, and most of the arrests were white for, for distribution, but the people that got the mandatory minimums in the last five years, you know, under the analog law for fentanyl were mm -hmm. black. So there's, it's just structural racism. It's just everywhere. Absolutely. I would not have been afforded the same opportunities had I not been um, privileged. I, I have to say to you exactly the same thing. I would probably still be in jail if I was not a white guy because I wouldn't have lived in a neighborhood where I could have gotten my stuff delivered to my house behind closed doors. We have done such damage to so many people because of of the zip code that they live in. And it just, it's just really terrible. We have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so with that, Paul and Nicole, I'd like to thank you both for um, sharing your experiences and for the work that you both do and the difference that you both make in the lives of so many, including that gentleman you encountered on the street just mm -hmm. yesterday, mm -hmm. Nicole. And I mean, these are the things that make the difference. Recovery coaches are such an important component of the addiction community. And we need more of them in, in more places. And we need people to understand their value. They may not be reimbursable at a rate that you can bill an insurance company, but the outcomes that they bring and the money they save and the lives that they save on the other end is what really makes the difference. So thank you both. Thank you so much, Colleen, for the, the great questions. Yeah, and thank you, Colleen. And uh, thank you for, you know, letting me be part of this. So I got to meet Nicole, which has been really cool to talk to. And I can't mm -hmm. wait to see you and um, talk to you in the future. So thank you so much for, um, 
for uh, sharing your experience with me this week and uh, give me some tips too. I really appreciate. Thank you so much. So nice to meet everyone. That was Paul Bowman and Nicole O'Donnell in conversation with Colleen LaBelle on the topic of peer recovery specialists. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the ATTC Network and the Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction, please visit our websites at attcnetwork.org and immersa.org. For a transcript of this podcast and other related resources, please visit the ATTC Network website. This podcast is supported by funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or SAMHSA. Information shared and views expressed reflect the speaker's best understanding of science or promising practices at the time of recording and should not be seen as directives. Content related to privacy and security in 42 CFR Part 2 presented during these sessions should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners are directed to discuss recommendations with their agency's legal counsel. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us again.